Today on The Scholars, it's time to talk all things early childhood. Our guest is Hannah Barber. Hannah is an early childhood specialist. She's a John Monash Foundation scholar who's studied at Harvard University in the United States. Hannah, welcome to the program. Thanks so much, Justin. Great to be here. Now, is it true that you have just come out of a COVID lockdown? <laughs> it is true. We were released at um, 4.01pm on Tuesday uh, out of the Hilton Hotel. So yeah, I've just arrived back in Australia. Now, what was that like? I'd like to know when you got on the plane, the plane ride home, the hotel stay. Give us some flavour around what that was <laughs> What that was like. Well, it was a unique experience. I think that's fair to say. Um, you know, the US uh, is almost fully open. So we had a domestic flight in the US um, that was packed. There was not a single spare seat on the plane. Other than masks, it was just business as usual. Um, and then I was extraordinarily um, fortunate. I was one of 34 people on a Dreamliner across the Pacific. So I, I like to joke that I had my own private jet on the way home. Sounds like it. Yeah, no, it was it was a truly, um, truly bizarre experience, but um, very uh, collegial, I say. Everyone was pretty glad to be on the plane and be one of the of the people getting home because that's not the circumstance for everyone at the moment. But um, yeah, I ended up at the Hilton, which I've got to say is there are worse places to spend exactly. two weeks. You were slumming it in the Hilton. Exactly, exactly. But um, well, look, we were we were well looked after. I mean, <laughs> you eat too much, your meals become, um, you know, the major part of your day, don't they? Three meals a day, and you get really excited when you get that knock on the door because it means <laughs> it's lunchtime. <laughs> but no, could you, could you, can you actually like leave, like pop your head out into the corridor at all? Like, are there rules around? The do's and don'ts. Yeah, no, you, you're not. You're not really meant to leave at all. Well, you can't leave your room at all. Um, the only people um, that we saw were our COVID testers, who were, you know, everyone's very chirpy and happy to see you and that sort of thing. But I try. I made friends with the security guard. He was just so happens to be stationed out the front of our room, so we'd have a nice little chat every morning. But it certainly is um, well distanced. Everyone's in masks, and you sort of don't cross that that line onto the hallway carpet until until day 14. God. And so and so you, you you've just got out yeah. and where are you now? You're in Sydney. I am in Sydney. Um I am in Sydney. I'm a Melbourne girl by heart and I remain a Melbourne girl by heart, but I'm I'm also pretty happy to be in Sydney at the moment. The beach is looking pretty good down at Bondi, I'd say. And so it's like Melbourne's been having a tough time of it as well. Is the plan at some point to return home? Yeah, it is. It is. Um, my family's all based in Melbourne and, um, yeah, I'm looking forward to getting back there. But I'll, um, I'll let them get their stuff sorted just a little bit <laughs> before, we, before we head back over the border, I think. Well, the world is, um, from everything that I understand that's happening in Melbourne at the moment, the world is very different here in Sydney. It's very open and mm. um, free. So we're, we're pretty pleased to be here. So early childhood, um, how did you get started on that journey? How did that begin for you? That is a, a, an interesting question. So I um, had always planned, I always wanted to be a lawyer. Um, I have a um, Bachelor of Arts. I did politics and international studies and wanted to do law. And um, I did a few days in a law firm. And <laughs> no, not for me. Um, <laughs> yeah, know? Let's, let, let's rule that out. Yeah, let's rule that out. Um, and I have this vivid recollection of sitting on um, the other end of a seesaw from my then two-year-old nephew. 
and chatting with my sister saying, gosh, what am, what am I going to do? Um, and anyway, we, as we sort of chatted through, she said, you really love children. What, do you, what, what could you do in that space? Um, and it's funny, I, I read an article by um, a professor in the US called um, Professor Jack Shonkoff, and it was a, a very seminal paper titled Neurons to Neighbourhoods and spoke about um, how the early years lay the foundation for basically lifelong learning, health and behaviour. Mm-hmm. And to me, I was captivated by that, completely captivated. It was not how I understood um, that child development worked. And to me, there was a real um, opportunity to do some meaningful work in a way that um, engaged with people from all across society. And so I jumped on that and did a um, Master's of Teaching in Early Childhood. And where did you do that? Um, I did that in Melbourne. Um, and then worked in a whole range of different um, roles. I did some work in um, research and academia. I did some work in um, professional development, working on some major national reforms. Um, And I was also a four-year-old teacher in Carlton North in Melbourne. Isn't it funny where your career takes you? You never, you never know where you're going to end up, really. No, you really don't. I mean, five-year plans are great, and I think it's excellent to have goals and things to work towards, but really, you've just got to jump on the opportunities as they come to you, I think. And so how did the uh, scholarship with the John Monash Foundation come about? Oh, so the I was, I was incredibly fortunate. I um, knew of some people and knew some people well who had um, been recipients of the scholarship in the past. And mm. it's, it's funny because I thought, oh, they, they wouldn't really want me. What do, they, what do they want someone who does child development for? And I was, um, had a great team of cheerleaders and supporters around me saying, put, a, put an application in. And it was, you know, people use the phrase life-changing quite a lot, but for me it actually really was. It was... Yep. Um, and what sort of year are we talking here? So this is uh, 2016 that I applied um, mm-hmm. for the scholarship. And um, it really, Justin, it really was totally life-changing. The, the, everything about it from the process, there's a real discipline about doing those applications well and preparing for the interviews right through to... It's not like an autofill when you're <laughs> online shopping. No, they don't fill your cart for you automatically. Um, there's a bit of thought that needs to go into it. Um, but, I mean, that's actually part of the beauty of it and one of the things that I'm really grateful for because um, you talk about precision and discipline in sort of mapping out some goals about where you want to go and what you want to do. The application and the interview process absolutely demands that of you. Your thinking needs to be crystal clear. And I actually think regardless of ultimately whether you end up with the scholarship or not, that is incredible thinking to be pushed to do at any point in your career. Mm. And so what was, the, what was the process? You applied, you had the interview, and then, and then what was it, a phone call, letter in the mail, an email, a it, text? It was a phone call. I was actually um, teaching at the time and I knew the phone calls were coming through. And so I was, um, had my phone on the office and the desk. You can imagine I, I was a four-year-old teacher at the time, so I've got um, 30 children in a play-based <laughs> classroom and a glass office. And I think probably on an average of once every 30 seconds, I was sticking my head. It wasn't my best teaching day, I think it's fair to say. <laughs> You've had better days. I've had better teaching days. But in terms of um, scholarship days, it was an absolute winner. It was winner. a good one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> And, um, yeah, I had a phone call saying, would you, I, I was the recipient of um, the Harvard Scholarship, um, the Roth Siegel Scholarship, and they said to me, would you like to go to Harvard? Do you want to give this a go? And I think that was really seminal for me because um, 
I I very much wanted to go to Harvard, but um, as I think a lot of people have, they have a um, hesitancy around, oh, am I good enough? Do I have the capacity mm. to actually do this? And to have someone saying, we think you are, we're behind you 100%, go for it, um, was a really remarkable experience. Well, tell me about that. So you pack your bags and you head over to the US for how many years? Yeah, so um, three and a bit years. So my course and my study was a year. Um, and then I was really fortunate during the course of my study, I took up a position at the Centre on the Developing Child, which is a um, research and development institute over at Harvard and was there for the entire time that I was in the US. And what is it like being at Harvard University? <laughs> um, well, it's not quite the legally blonde experience that a lot of people ask me <laughs> okay. about. Um, yes. It, it's it's a really remarkable thing. I have these vivid memories of, you can imagine being extraordinarily jet lagged and walking through Harvard Yard and um, it'll probably give you a sense of quite how jet lagged I was. They had these signs up saying, um, welcome, welcome everyone, wherever you are from, you are home. And I think at that point I almost burst into tears, <laughs> which, mm. you know, partly is a, is a reflection on, you know, the moment. And I think partly was probably jet lag as well. Um, but it is, it's, it's a remarkable, remarkable world to be a part of. Things just open up that you would never, ever think in your wildest dreams. And you have to be um, incredibly disciplined and careful that you don't um, acclimatise to that being normal. I, I have this memory of chatting with my sister um, back in Australia and saying to she said to me, what are you doing tonight? And I said, um, Oh, well, Al Gore's speaking at the Kennedy School, but I've seen him before. I don't know. Yeah. Maybe I'll go. I might, go to, Maybe I might go to see Bill Gates or Mark Zuckerberg <laughs> instead. Exactly, exactly. And I think um, I think there's an element too, particularly being not from the US, like very much having this sense of I am here for this and for this experience. It, it, it makes sure that you don't acclimatise too much. So what was the degree you actually studied there? So I did a master's in education and I specialised in um, a substream called human development and psychology and really did a deep dive into children's cognition. Um, as part of my application to Monash, I was extraordinarily interested in um, sort of a cognitive skill set that children develop really early on in life called executive function and self-regulation. Um, mm. And the reason that I was really interested in that was because we have a very good sense that this is a foundational skill set that actually um, is, a, is a precursor to outcomes later on in life and not just sort of academic outcomes, but here we're talking about um, uh, social outcomes, uh, we're talking about economic outcomes, financial outcomes, because this particular skill set, it really houses your ability to make decisions to plan, to regulate your emotions. So really all those foundational things that um, you need in order to operate in society and to succeed in society. So your specific field of expertise, how would you describe what it is you do and are good at? <laughs> good question. <laughs> um, I look at the way that children develop and the way that environments affect um, children's development. Um, particularly looking at the effects of stress on children's brains and bodies. So I look um, really at the most foundational elements of development. There are lots of people who do a lot of work on, say, literacy outcomes or numeracy development, that sort of thing. But I sort of come all the way back as far as I can to first principles to say, okay, how can we 
help children develop really strong brains and really strong bodies so we can layer all these wonderful things on top. And is this from from birth to, say, five years of age or 10 years of age? What what time frame do you generally look at? Yeah, so early childhood is generally considered birth to, birth to five or birth to eight globally. Um, the work that I have been doing is, really, is coming back even earlier and really specialising in that sort of prenatal to two, prenatal to three space. Um, because we know the effect, the um, experiences that a mother has when she's pregnant can actually affect um, lifelong outcomes for children as well. Okay, so I, I'm going to presume you actually work with a lot of kids in your job. <laughs> Sometimes. I used to. In my former life as a teacher, I did. Um, a lot of my work now is actually working with um, government officials, with policymakers, with organisational leaders to say, okay, if we know that we've moved beyond um, nature versus nurture, that's an argument that sort of we threw out a couple of decades ago now, and we know that children, um, children's development is really a product of what we call gene and environment interaction. So a child's genetic makeup and the expression of that is determined by the experiences that they have. A lot of my work is working with sort of um, decision makers and authorizers to say, okay, what do we need those environments to look like and what levers can we pull here um, in order to make sure that these environments are as positive as they can be for children and for families so we can lay those really strong foundations um, for years to come. So it's so your area of expertise is looking at those critical development years prior to going to school. Yeah, yep, really early. And so what... Um, as a parent myself, what, what can parents do to help kids before they even go to preschool, yeah. uh, give them the, be the best chance, I suppose, of the best to thrive, <laughs> yeah. to thrive, to thrive? Yeah, I mean, the, the, the number one thing, and I think the people always look at me a little bit funny when I say this, is to talk and interact with your child. It's as, it's as simple as that. Um, the way that we know that brains and bodies are built is that um, is through what we call serve and return interactions, which is that back and forth engagement between a parent and a child or a caregiver and a child. Mm. Um, if, if you had to pick one thing to do with a child, it's that. Spend time with them, talk with them, interact with them, respond with them. Um, that's really, and I think the thing to remember here is we're, we're, we're biologically programmed to raise really strong children, but sometimes in societies things get in the way of that. And so major stresses in the lives of families can get in the way of parents and caregivers' ability to engage with their children that way. Um, so from a parent perspective, I would be saying engage, engage, engage. And from a policy perspective, we're saying, okay, what, what's getting in the way of that for families? What are the stresses that are occurring in their lives? And let's do everything that we can to remove those for families. Have you looked at the impact of full-time work of both parents on the development of, of kids? Yeah, um, I haven't specifically, but I think the, the thing to remember about that is children... Um, children require really positive environments to thrive. And what I mean by that are environments in which they're full of these sort of language-rich serve and return interactions and where they have really, really strong attachment to people in their lives, the caregivers in their lives, where they know their routines, they know their cues, where obviously um, you don't want to remove all the stresses from a child's life. No one, no one wants that. Children need yeah. to learn both 
physiologically and sort of psychologically, how do you deal with these bumps in the road? Because you, you're never going to eliminate them from life. You need to be able to navigate that. Um, but in terms of parents working full time, it's a question around, well, what supports do they have in place for that child? You know, really high quality early childhood education services are critical for this. You might have um, kinship care, you might have grandparents, you might have aunts, uncles, neighbours, nannies, whatever the case may be. Hopefully someone. Hopefully, yes, someone <laughs> would be a strong recommendation for yes. sure. Um, but if that world for them is characterised by those really strong serve and return interactions, by strong attachment, by people who are familiar to them, realistically, it's it could even be a good thing. So what are some facts about childhood development that we might not know? <laughs> good question. Um, well, I think the thing, the one that actually uh, I spoke a little bit before about that really seminal paper that I read um, and the one that caught my attention that made me stop and really think is children very, very early on in life um, are proliferating neural connections. So they're joining sort of the dots in their brain, if you will, at a rate of a million neural connections per second, which to me is completely astounding. So you've got, well, there's a million. And there's another million. And there's another million. If you're if you're 18 months old, that's the rate at which you're connecting the dots, if you will. And that's mm. why early childhood is such a critical time, because you never have that rate of replication again. Um, you know, I, I won't say too much about the drop off and decline, but I do know I'm on the other side of that curve, which yes. you won't think about too much. And it's um, you know a really practical example of that is if you think about language learning in kids, if if you've ever observed or seen a child pick up a first or a second language, you'll know that they can do it at the drop of a hat. Um, it's amazing. It's amazing. And it's because of that neural connection and what, it's what we really call plasticity. It's the ability of the brain to shape um, and move. And so that is why this is such a window of opportunity for children because we're never going to get that rate again. So when we're thinking about investments from a societal level, from a government level, that rate of return that you get when you work with children in the very early years and you get it right from the beginning, incredible. You'll never get that again. It's remarkable. So how does Australia stack up if you were to look at the public health measures for early childhood development locally? Mm. How do we compare to, say, what other Western countries are doing? It's a good question. The... Um... We are doing well and there is a lot more that can be done, I think is the really important message there. Um, the, the major headline is that the, the disparity and the gap between children who are doing really well and children who need some more support is widening, which is obviously of concern when you think about um, divisions uh, that happen very early on. Those trajectories tend to continue and tend to be exacerbated as children get older. So when we're thinking about um, equality and equity in our society, it's important that we jump on those. Um, Scandinavian countries will be no surprise to people that they are held up in lights in terms of the support that they provide for children. Um, but also a lot of countries um, like Singapore who are acutely aware that human capital for them is such an important lever, both society from a societal perspective and from an economic perspective. They invest heavily in early childhood development and that looks different um, in different contexts, so you might be talking here about parental supports, um, because obviously when you have a six-month-old, the parent is um, the most important lever in terms of being able to access that child, but also in terms of um, really, really high-quality early childhood education as well. 
So if you think about the the lockdown uh, everyone's been experiencing for the past six months, um, are children um, more more so or less so affected by, by that, do you think? It's a good question. I think the headline there is it's going to affect children, every child differently. Um, and the reason I say that is because uh, because we know um, that children are a product of um, or their development is a product of gene and environment interaction, it depends on what's happening in their environment already. So say, for example, if both um, parents in one particular example are both still working, financially things are okay, they're having to manage perhaps older children who are at school and being in lockdown and all the stresses that come with that, but they're still able to provide a really strong routine for children and there's lots of space for those reciprocal interactions for them, then they're probably going to be okay, Um, Mm. particularly from a biological perspective when we're talking about building really strong brains and bodies. There's a whole sort of discussion to be had about schooling and, and the impact there. But from that sort of foundational level, they're probably going to be okay. But then we need to think about, well, Well, if we know that um, stress and really excessive levels of stress for parents and for families and for children can be extraordinarily detrimental um, to development, then we really need to consider that very carefully. And um, what you will hear when you work in the space a lot is the effect of um, what we call toxic stress. And toxic stress is when children are exposed um, to adverse environments or environments Mm -hmm. that trigger what we call a fight and flight response. Mm -hmm. So you can imagine anyone who's ever had a bit of a scare, maybe you've, um, I don't know, tried to cross the road and a car's quickly whipped past and you get that moment where the hairs on your arm prickle up and you go, (gasps) and sort of you feel like you've had a bit of a shock. That's your fight or flight response. Now, for children, a little bit of this is incredibly good for them. They need to learn how to manage that. But for for some children, that fight or flight response is triggered consistently um, for prolonged periods of time. Now, when that happens, that's when we start to move into a space where that's not great for development. And you can imagine the, it causes a real wear and tear effect on your body. You're not meant mm. to sort of be in that elevated state for a long time. So to your question, Justin, about, well, how are kids affected? It depends on what's happening in their environment. So, mm. you know, what we know is domestic violence rates are increasing. We know that there is an enormous amount of economic and financial stress on a lot of families and a particular subsection of um, society as well. We know that um, in certain professions have been hit much harder than others. And so all of a sudden, if you've got an environment where um, that fight or flight response is being triggered because families are extraordinarily stressed, they've got economic burdens, they may have relationship stresses, they may be Um, domestic abuse and violence in the home, that's when we really need to start thinking very carefully about how we best support those families to get to the other side of, you know, these public health measures that have needed to be put in place. And the parents are probably not even aware or thinking about the impact that their particular situations are having, the flow-on effects that they're having on their children. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, this this is a really interesting thing, right? So, Um, there's a lot of work being done in Australia at the moment about how we tell the story of child development. And the reason that that is really important is because there's been a lot of research done by a brilliant organisation in the US in Washington, D.C. called the Frameworks Institute. And what that tells us is people have no idea how children develop. 
that you know there's very much this black box and and there's this understanding that well they're just small and then they get bigger or they're born <laughs> you know small humans then they grow or um or now they're, they're talking exactly oh surprise <laughs> but that, that what that fails to recognize is the influence of environments right which which has an enormous flow on effect because all of a sudden if you don't really understand that the environment is critical in shaping the trajectories of children, then why would you worry about high-quality early childhood education? Or why would you worry about supporting families who are under extraordinarily, extraordinarily high burdens of stress from a particular lockdown? That that is actually um, an investment in sort of child development and, and arguably an investment in future public health as well. Um, and so you're, to your point around parents may not understand, you're right. They may, they may not, and that's not that's not a fault of theirs by any means. That's something that we need to think about as a society. How do we actually put things in place to support parents in this? You know, I I, I hesitate to say, but like unprecedented times. Hmm. I'm going to open deliberately a Pandora's box here and, <laughs> and ask you your thoughts on screen time for kids and oh. technology. Yeah, good question. Discuss. Okay. Um, surprisingly, this is not the first time that I've been asked this question. Mm. Um, I think the thing is with screen time, because the, the emergence of screens and technology is still relatively new, sort of on a, when you compare it back to sort of evolution, it's a relatively new, um, phenomenon. We don't have a lot of sort of, um, of longitudinal data on what it does over the long term, but, but here's what we can say. We know that um, children develop through those reciprocal interactions. And we also know that children do not learn from one directional engagement. So that is sort of a screen, for example, right? Um, and so anything that nudges out those reciprocal interactions and those reciprocal engagements, that's a little bit of cause for concern. But what we have seen, and this is a really interesting sort of side effect of the pandemic, that that probably at this stage may not apply to things like FaceTime, to video interactions. Mm, but if you have a grandparent yeah. on the other side of the screen and they're engaging in that particular way, there's a little bit of preliminary data to suggest that that's actually quite different to a child sitting perhaps on a game or an app or watching a video yes, or something like that. Yes. Um, but what I would say to that, Justin, is parents shouldn't be too harsh on themselves either. You know, putting putting a child in front of play school for half an hour because you just need to have a cup of tea in silence or something like that. That's right. Get rid of that guilt. Just go with that. Yeah. Or thinking, I, you know, I really, I'd like to have a night out at a restaurant. Is it okay to bring the iPad? Yes, sure. <laughs> Sit yeah, there in silence. Totally. Every now and again. Mum and, dad, mum and dad enjoy dinner. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, what, so what's next? You, you head back to Melbourne eventually. Uh, yeah. And then sort of get stuck into it again. Yeah, I'm. It's it's actually a fantastic time um, to be in early childhood, and I'm I may be a little biased here, but it's there's some really exciting movement happening in the space in Australia. I think um, the COVID nineteen pandemic has shown us um, the importance of really high quality early childhood education. And most people sort of listening will recall um, we went through sort of an in inverted commas a period of free. Um, early childhood education earlier this yes. year and I think mm -hmm. there's certainly been a recognition of um, the importance of that and the critical um, sort of infrastructure that that plays. Um, so there's a lot of work being done both sort of publicly and behind the scenes about okay so what do we do with this because we know that the system as it's functioning at the moment well isn't 
really, to be honest. It's a complex system um, that is incredibly hard to navigate, that um, is full of a lot of bureaucracy. And so there's a lot of work happening in the space of how do we actually make this a functioning system so that it is one of those supports um, for children and families, and particularly for children and families who need it most. Um, so there's a lot of movement in that space, which I'm excited to be getting involved with too. Just wrapping up, what um, given given your career has has moved in a, f- a few different directions, yeah. staying obviously within this the same sort of theme. What's your advice to people who are potentially looking at changing careers or finishing school or about to start studying, but they're not entirely certain about in which direction they would like to head? What what can you tell them? Oh, it's a good question. Um, I would say. You will always you will always be held in good stead if you aspire to excellence in whatever it is that you do. If you aim to be um, sort of the most knowledgeable, to be the most skilled, to be working with the best people that you possibly can be in whatever domain that you may pick, you will always be held in good stead. Um, I think also um, a lot of people when they're making these decisions think about um, think about the content of what they're interested in and what they'd like to do. Um, I would be pushing for us to think about the skills that you need. Um, you know, we're moving into a world that the world is shifting and it is changing and jobs are more mm. fluid and I can't probably even, I, I probably don't even know what my job title will be in 15 years' time. I've probably never <laughs> heard of it before. But I can probably guarantee the skills that are going to need to be there. I'm going to need critical thinking skills. I'm going to need research skills. I'm going to need sort of stakeholder management skills. And Thinking about how you actually build those skill sets as well, I think, is a really critical thing that's often um, often overlooked when people are making these types of decisions. Well, Hannah, that sounds great advice to me. It's been an absolute pleasure having you on the Scholars Podcast this morning. Thank you so much for joining us and we wish you well in the future. Thank you. Thanks, Justin.